Thanks to Audible, History of the Marine Corps can now give you a free audiobook. Audible is known for its tens of thousands of audio selections, but they also have choices from podcast to meditation sessions. I use Audible for myself and for some of the reference material we use on the show. I love audiobooks. For one, I'm a crayon eater, so having someone read the book to me is a lot easier, but it also allows me to rewind and re-listen to segments, and I could listen while I'm doing things around the house. In the spirit of transparency, History of the Marine Corps receives a kickback for everyone who signs up, but the author or the publisher does not sponsor me. Every recommendation is a book I personally have read or have listened to and enjoyed. I'll include my suggestion at the end of this episode, but don't feel obligated to select my recommendation. This book is available to any of the tens of thousands of audiobooks offered by Audible, and whether you decide to continue your membership with Audible or not, this book is yours to keep forever. Visit audibletrial.com slash marine history for a free audiobook and a free 30-day trial. Now on to the show. Welcome to episode 69 of History of the Marine Corps, The Gilded Age, Part 1. Last week's episode closed the chapter on the American Civil War. We discussed the Second Battle of Fort Fisher and summarized the meeting of Lee and Grant at Appomattox. The episode ends with some statistics about the war. This episode is Part 1 of The Gilded Age. It would be 33 years before the United States formally entered another war. And during this time, the nation experienced rapid growth. Marines wouldn't reap too many benefits of this growth, but without a war to fight, Marines had the opportunity to travel the world. Uniforms were changed to the ones we're familiar with today, formal training was enforced, and additional weapons were added to the Marines' arsenal. The next couple of episodes will take a look at those changes. Thanks for joining. Now let's talk about the history of the Marine Corps. After the American Civil War, the United States began a transformation of growth. The country focused on developing its industrial and business power, and resources were spent within the United States. The term Gilded Age was coined by Mark Twain in a novel titled The Gilded Age, A Tale of Today. The term was supposed to criticize the country's growth. Twain was making a point that the U.S. wasn't exactly experiencing a golden age, where the population as a whole was living during a time of peace, prosperity, and happiness. It was more gilded, like a thin layer of gold covering cheap metal. The reason for this satire was because the United States was experiencing a lot of growth as a nation. However, only a handful of individuals managed to gain enormous wealth during this time. But regardless of Twain's criticism, the term stuck, and it was adopted by historians. And the United States had tremendous growth during this era. Railroads expanded, the economy almost doubled, and new inventions were developed that helped shape the country. The nation's growth brought new opportunities for everyone. Unfortunately, not all those opportunities were good for the United States. 
the progress benefited the country. But the way many of these things were getting approved was through political kickbacks and bribes. One of the biggest scandals was when the Union Pacific Railroad executives formed a fake construction company called the Crédit Mobilier of America. Union Pacific Railroad gave the fake company contracts to help build the railroad. The company was just a front, and Crédit Mobilier hired Union Pacific Railroad for the construction. They submitted bills for twice the cost, and they pocketed the profits. When news started to spread of this scandal, politicians were bribed to prevent an investigation. Over a dozen politicians, including the vice president of the United States, were involved in this scandal. This wasn't uncommon, and part of the success of many of these ventures was bribing politicians. But despite the progress of the country and this rapid growth, the United States Marine Corps saw little advancement during this period. Typically after any war, the United States military is downsized. The logic at the time being that a larger military isn't needed if we aren't at war. However, the Marine Corps didn't see growth during the Civil War, so the need to downsize wasn't a priority in 1865. The Navy did have some improvements, but the number of Marines required to serve at sea and guard naval yards didn't change so Congress didn't bring up the need to decrease the number of Marines. From the end of the Civil War until 1898, the Marine Corps was the least active in its history. The lack of action led to officers getting old and promotion stalled. At the time, the Marine Corps focused more on sea service, and Marines were placed on almost all the naval warships. The shape the Navy was in wasn't much better than the Marines. Most of their ironclad ships were built quickly only to support the Civil War. This quick buildup meant that the quality of these ships wasn't the best, and many started to fall apart a few years later. For the next 20 years, the Navy would repair and rebuild ships and develop new squadrons. The European squadron was assigned to the Eastern Hemisphere. The Pacific squadron was tasked with patrolling the west coast of South America and parts of the South Seas, and the Old East India Squadron was renamed to the Asiatic Squadron. Marines were part of each one of these groups and participated in the travel and adventure and loads of fun. The main mission was to protect the lives and property of Americans overseas. They also had the mission of supporting U.S. commerce vessels, but as the Gilded Age progressed, the number of ships trading throughout the globe diminished now that fortunes could be made in the United States. The Navy and Marines spent more time visiting and establishing relationships with foreign countries rather than escorting merchant ships. The European squadron was made up of 10 ships, and they focused a lot of their attention in the Mediterranean. There were still tensions in this area, but the United States played more of a supporting role. For example, in 1882, Egypt was technically an independent nation at the time, but due to the debt owed to Great Britain and France, the two Western nations essentially controlled the country. Ahmed Arabi Pasha was prime minister at the time, and Great Britain was nervous that he might default on his debt and gain control of the Suez Canal. Britain felt that military intervention was necessary. France disagreed 
and Great Britain decided to bombard Alexandria on July 11th. The bombardment set the city on fire, and the European squadron sent 73 Marines under Captain Cochrane, assisted by Lieutenant Waller with 60 sailors. The team landed, helped put out the fires, and restored order to the city. Their main focus was the protection of the United States Embassy and American personnel in the area. As for the Asiatic Squadron, they were all over the place. On top of taking over the responsibilities of the East India Squadron, they participated in Arctic explorations and helped with tensions in Latin America. A year before the European Squadron handled tensions in Alexandria, the Asiatic Squadron helped locate lost Arctic explorers north of Norway. 24 Marines on the Alliance, with extensive experience navigating the Poles, helped with this expedition. Another small detachment of Marines on board the Alert helped with the Greeley expedition, where a group of explorers was lost somewhere west of Greenland. Six survivors were located on Cape Sabine and brought back to the United States. As for the Marines stationed in the United States, they weren't sitting around twiddling their thumbs. They were helping with local issues as well. The United States legislated hefty taxes for hard alcohol, and this additional cost resulted in illegal distilleries popping up and black market alcohol being sold. Marines were called in to help stop the distillers and rioters. In Philadelphia, a mob showed up to help the distillers, but Brevet Major Dawson, Brevet Captain Fagan, Lieutenant Ford, and a detachment of Marines repulsed the mob. In Brooklyn, four companies of Marines helped stop a mob in Irishtown from overpowering federal authorities. Marines would participate in dozens of raids on distilleries in the following years, stop riots, and help enforce laws. The Marines at home saw little change. Garrison duty expanded from eight stations to 11, and most of the Marines' time was spent in training. Just for comparison, the number of Marine detachments serving at sea was over 60. New officers flooded the ranks, and as the years went on, the officers who were veterans of the Civil War remained at their same rank, and during the Spanish-American War in 1898, many of them were still captains. One example was Marine Francis H. Harrington. He was commissioned in 1864, promoted to first lieutenant in 1869, promoted a captain in 1884, and remained captain until 1897. Every Marine felt the same pain, and promotion was slow, even in the enlistment ranks. While Marines at home were handling their own problems, Marines overseas focused on Latin America and the Far East. From a diplomatic perspective, I find this time interesting for the United States. A lot of our relationships with future allies and future enemies are more pronounced during this time. A year after the Civil War, the Asiatic Squadron was sent to China to protect American citizens. The Chinese attacked the American consul at Nuchuang, and on June 20, 1866, the Wachusett arrived to help, commanded by Commander Robert Townsend. Fifty Marines and sailors were sent to shore to scout the area and assess the situation. The Chinese local authorities offered to help the United States track down the assailants, 
but they were hesitant because of the retaliation they could receive identifying their leaders. When the scouting team came back to the ship, Townsend decided to send 100 marines and sailors to shore and find the leader of the gang, Sword Raku. The assailants were tried and punished accordingly. Townsend next visited the authorities, escorted by an armed detachment of 100 marines and sailors. The purpose of this visit was to make it clear that this would not be tolerated again. In 1866, the American ship General Sherman entered the Han River in Korea. Local authorities disapproved of the American ship traveling through their waterways. So when the tide lowered and the ship ran aground, the Koreans set the ship on fire. When the crew came to shore, they were massacred. The situation wasn't unique to the United States, and the French experienced similar conflicts in the area. France attempted to retaliate and attack Korean forts, but they were repelled. The United States sent in an expedition to help protect Americans and potentially open the area for trade. A survey detachment was sent on June 1st, made up of the Monocacy, Palos, and four other boats. While they were traveling up the river, they spotted a fort with at least 1,000 men. Without any warning, the Koreans opened fire on the American ships. The U.S. fleet returned fire, which immediately caused the Korean military to retreat. As the American ships continued around a river bend, they spotted another stronghold. Expecting a similar attack, the U.S. immediately fired but the Koreans didn't fire back. This was a relatively harmless attack. There wasn't any damage to the ship or its crew, but the Navy gave the Koreans 10 days to apologize for attacking, which they never did. A punitive expedition was launched to establish a treaty between the two nations. The Monocacy and the Palos would lead the attack and support the land forces by bombarding the fort. 651 men from the other ships boarded 22 boats and headed for shore. They took with them a battery of seven howitzers. 105 marines were in this landing force, commanded by Captain McLean Tilton, and they were assigned as shock troops, while the sailors were organized into an infantry battalion. When the attack commenced, the Koreans attempted to return fire at the two ships, but ground forces flanked the fort, and Koreans could not attack the troops because of their position. The Marines led the attack, followed by the sailors and artillery. When the defense saw the Marines advancing, they fled, and Marines immediately took possession before the rest of the U.S. troops arrived. Marines positioned themselves behind the 54 guns of the fort, and the rest of the Marines formed an outpost surrounding the stronghold protecting the U.S. troops within. The next morning, the Korean fort was destroyed and the expedition made its way to its second objective. When they arrived, they found the structure abandoned and proceeded to destroy it. The United States continued up the river towards their next target. As they advanced, their right flank received fire from a hill. The Marines formed a line of skirmishers, advanced up the hill, and cleared the area of hostels. The Marines then spotted a larger detachment of Koreans on the next ridge. They were too far to reach with a musket, 
so artillery was brought in and fired a few shots. The Koreans quickly retreated. The Marines continued their advance to the next fort, named the Citadel. When U.S. forces were within a third of a mile from their target, they stopped and rested. Two companies of sailors were positioned to protect the advancing party's flank and rear. The Marines continued with their assault. U.S. Marines covered the front with a line of skirmishers deployed at one-yard intervals, and they were able to come within 150 yards of the enemy before being stopped. There, the Marines held back the Koreans until the remainder of U.S. forces caught up with them. The U.S. was up against a strong defense. The Marines spotted a small hill, 30 yards towards the direction of the enemy. It had the potential to provide effective cover for the Marines, but terrain before the hill had little cover and would leave them exposed to enemy fire. Tilton decided to take the chance, and he and his Marines rushed towards the hill and moved into the location in a matter of seconds, losing one Marine in the process. The Marines were now in a great location, protected by a hill and within 120 yards of the fort. The deadly accuracy of the Marines took out 50 Koreans. After four minutes of fighting, the U.S. continued their advance on the fort. It was slow progress, and Marines took turns advancing in small detachments while receiving supporting fire from the Marines and sailors behind them. As the first assaulting party hit the fort, they were met with rocks thrown from the Koreans. Navy Lieutenant McKee led one of the assaulting parties, and he was shot during a hand-to-hand fight. Lieutenant Commander Shiley avenged his death and charged over the parapet with the storming party, and he killed the Korean who shot McKee. The Marines and sailors rushed into the fort, and soon, most were engaged in hand-to-hand combat. Marine Private Purvis headed towards the flagstaff and started to loosen the halyards. Corporal Charles Brown joined him, and the two Marines tore down the Korean flag. Both Marines would receive a Medal of Honor for their acts that day. During this entire engagement, only three Americans were killed, one of whom was a Marine. Ten were injured. The Citadel was destroyed as well, and the sailors and Marines captured 182 cannons. The cannons were promptly spiked and thrown in the river. The stronghold was renamed Fort McKee, after the sailor who was killed during the first assault. This expedition showed the strength of a small detachment of sailors and marines. Although a treaty wouldn't be signed until a decade later, the mere presence of U.S. forces caused doubt on attacking Americans again. On October 18, 1867, the United States purchased Alaska from Russia for $7.2 million. The Marines would be the ones to raise the Stars and Stripes for the first time in Sitka, Alaska. The Pacific Squadron had control of this area, and they had a unique mission. They were charged with protecting the hunting of seals in the Bering Sea. Seal poachers, mostly British, were hunting in the area during the breeding season, which threatened the seals' extinction. Before the United States owned Alaska, the Russians protected this territory. But now with Russia out of the picture, poaching started to rise. 
After years of negotiation, the United States and Great Britain finally agreed to help each other and detain anyone poaching in the Bering Sea. The Marines participated in multiple raids of illegal poaching vessels and oversaw guarding the prison ship. This duty was miserable. If you ever watched Deadliest Catch, you could get an idea of how bad the sea can get in that area. Cold weather, rough seas, and crappy sea rations left the crew hungry and exhausted. But the support from the Marines helped remove many illegal ships in the area. Seal poaching wasn't solved until many years later. It wouldn't be until 1911 that Great Britain, Russia, Japan, and the United States all agreed to prohibit their citizens from hunting seals in that area. Up until 1875, the Marines continued to wear the same uniform they wore during the Civil War. When uniform standards started to change, it seemed like many characteristics of the uniform changes imitated the French. But here we see the uniform change into something we're more familiar with today. All the service uniforms were blue, except during the summer, where white was authorized while off duty. Helmets were made part of the uniform as well. In 1868, the Marine Corps emblem was updated and is similar to the Eagle Globe and Anchor we know today. In 1870, Marines were issued a brand new breech-loading rifled musket. General Zylan was impressed with this weapon. He said, quote, There was nothing left to be desired in the military equipment of the Marines. Unquote. The Marines adopted the Gatling gun and the Hotchkiss revolving cannon in the 1890s. The rapid fire generated by these weapons was the most destructive piece that infantry could use. The hilt of the Mameluke sword, the sword issued to Lieutenant Presley O'Bannon during the First Barbary War and carried by Marine officers, was replaced in 1859 by a sword with a basket hilt. This decision was reversed in 1875, and the current Mameluke sword carried by officers uses the original Mameluke hilt. Training was also revamped during this time. Before 1891, there was little effort made on training Marines. Military tactics were usually taught by older Marines or learned by fighting in a war yourself. Nothing was formalized, and the lessons learned from previous engagements were usually lost. This shortcoming wasn't limited to the Marine Corps or even the U.S. military. It was common at the time for professions to gain experience through apprenticeships, and most skills were taught by experience, not necessarily schooling. Even some medicine was practiced this way. Although publications on military tactics were starting to be produced, it wasn't the standard for the U.S. military, and especially for U.S. Marines. Few officers took the study seriously. The first officer school, the School of Application, was opened in 1891 at Marine Barracks in Washington. All newly commissioned officers would go through this school. This training opened a lot of benefits to the Corps. New officers were getting the training needed and made them more knowledgeable warriors. Some older officers used their real-world experience and combined it with the theoretical teachings which excelled them to the forefront of their fields and the leading expert in their specialties. However, most officers still ignored this training and it wasn't even an option for enlisted Marines. 
It wouldn't be until years later that an organized school was set up for enlisted. The first training given to enlisted was on marksmanship, and the training proved to be effective. The Marine Corps saw significant improvements in the tactics and accuracy of Marines. The upcoming years would put this training to the test. Next week, we'll follow the Marines back to the Far East and Latin America. Welcome to this week's book recommendation. This week's audiobook is 1812, The Navy's War by George C. Don. My favorite era in American military history is probably 18th century, early 19th century naval warfare. A strong navy is vital to any successful military, and this book does a phenomenal job providing examples of that. The War of 1812 is remembered as a war mostly fought on land. But the Navy and the Marines played a significant part in this war. This book covers the 13 frigates built by the United States, the evolution of these ships used by the U.S., and the politics of convincing Congress to fund a strong Navy for the defense of this country. Visit audibletrial.com slash marinehistory for a free audiobook and a free 30-day trial. But don't feel obligated to select my recommendation. The free audiobook applies to any of the thousands of Audible choices. If you like what you're hearing, check out historyofthemarinecorps.com. Here you can subscribe to our newsletter, find out more information about each show, and look at references used for each episode. We're on Facebook and Twitter at Marine History, and on Instagram at History of the Marines. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell a friend. We count on listeners like you to share, and any help would be greatly appreciated. If you don't like what you hear, please contact us through historyofthemarinecorps.com and let us know why. I'm always looking for ways to improve. Thanks for listening, and Semper Fi.